1: there are a lot of things that are done within families that are harmful, but they are able to continue because there's a lot of shaming to give life to those terrible behaviors. Oh, you can't say that, or you can't do that, or it's this way because. But I don't have to tolerate certain behaviors from people because they're an aunt, an uncle, or whatever that is.
0: Welcome to the Unwind Podcast, a podcast for you to relax, drift off, and allow your mind to wander. I'm your host, Poppy Jamie, a best-selling author, entrepreneur, and researcher on a mission to share information that will help you live happier, healthier, and with more love, optimism, and wisdom. This podcast features interviews with well-known guests and world-leading experts about what it truly means to be human and what we can do to become the very best versions of ourselves. On this week's Unwind, I'm speaking to the best-selling author, international speaker, and psychotherapist, Nedra Tawab. She is an incredible woman who has written books like Set Boundaries, Find Peace and her latest book explores family relationships and how they impact mental health. Her book is called Drama Free, and it's a guide to managing unhealthy family relationships. And I thought that this subject is fascinating because there's often a lot of guilt that surrounds difficult family relationships because we feel like we should have harmonious ones. And so when they aren't harmonious, I think a lot of confusion can arise. And if you're someone who has experienced emotional neglect, absent parents, mental health struggles with siblings or other relatives, then I think you'll find this book really helpful because Nedra combines a very clear and easy way to talk about these difficult issues in a compassionate way and gives practical advice in how you can take control of your own life. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation around the very real subject of how family impacts our mental health. I'd love for you to share a piece of writing that resonates with you.
1: This is the first paragraph in my book, Drama Free. Among the most significant contributions to your mental health, relationships can cause you pain or they can heal you. Positively or negatively, relationships have an impact on your mental health and emotional well-being. We must take the health of our relationships seriously and strengthen those connections where possible.
0: And why did you choose this piece?
1: I think we consider the importance of relationships on our health. We often think about food. We think about exercise, but we know that people can die from a broken heart. People can have high blood pressure, heart disease. Cancer has been linked to relationship issues. So there are so many health consequences of poor relationships that we tend to gloss over because the impact is more long-term than it is, you know, short-term. We don't see it immediately. We don't notice ourselves becoming unwell, but we are becoming unwell when our relationships are unhealthy. It is fascinating
0: because we recently had Dr. Gabal Mate on the podcast talking about how people pleasing has been linked to higher chances of developing disease and it just feels exactly the same with your work that the impact as you said when you're joining actually medical health with this emotional health aspect of relationships why do you in particular want to focus on family relationships and focus your book on this
1: after my first book, Set Boundaries, Find Peace, so many people love that book, but their question was, well, how do I set boundaries with my families? What if it's my mother? What if it's my sister? What if it's my brother? And there needed to be something in the world that say, even if it's your mother, your sister, your brother, your cousins, or whoever, They need boundaries. And here is why you are challenged by setting them. You're challenged by setting them because in your family, there has been shame around people being different, about people having boundaries. There has been this glorification of accepting things that are unhealthy in the relationship. So this book needed to happen so that we can understand that love is love. Love is not pain. It is not hurting each other. It's not gossiping and being mean. That is not love. Love feels good. Now, is it perfect all the time? No. Are there mistakes sometimes? Yes, but there are also apologies. There is healing. There is some living reconciliation for our behaviors. And when that does not exist, we cannot say that loyalty is the love. I mean, that just has brought me tingles. Love is love.
0: And love can often not feel like that. And we create all these stories as to why it may not feel like that. And you open your book talking about unlearning dysfunction. So it would be great to unpack that. What do you mean by this? Because it relates so much to what you've just said.
1: It is getting out of the mindset that things are okay because it's family. I often wonder if someone was like, oh my gosh, my dad is narcissistic. What would happen if you met a person who tried to manipulate you? Don't we recognize that when someone's trying to swindle us? We even have a word for it, swindling, hoodwinking, taking advantage of. But in our families it's like, oh that's just your dad. <laughs> that's that's the word for it. It's just your dad. That's the phrase that we use. And we have to unlearn that that is okay, because it is not. It's not okay in any relationship to have to tolerate behaviors that are criminal, that are harmful, that are unkind, that are not nice. Those are not things we have to tolerate because we share a last name or some blood bond with people. That's more of a reason for people to be kind to us, if anything. And so it's not always, oh my gosh, we have to end these relationships. But the first step is recognizing that it's not okay.
0: What do you find the most common dysfunctional patterns within families to be? And perhaps adding to that, some of the most silent ones that, to your point, we don't even recognize as dysfunctional.
1: I would say shaming is number one. And I'm going to pick that because there are a lot of things that are done within families that are harmful, but they are Able to continue because there's a lot of shaming to give life to those terrible behaviors. Oh, you can't say that, or you can't do that, or it's this way because I recently had a conversation with a family member who has a relationship that I don't have with this unhealthy person in our family. And I said, you know, for my entire life, this person has not been nice. They've not been kind. And I understand that. I haven't been alive as long as you, right? Like you have a different relationship with this person, but I don't have to tolerate certain behaviors from people because they're an aunt, an uncle, or whatever that is. You know, I just want people to be nice to me. So if that's my neighbor, it's my neighbor. (laughs) You know, if it's my coworker, it'll be my coworker, but I don't want to tolerate being. Abused or being manipulated by someone because of their title in my life. I want them to have an authentic relationship with me where they can be respectful, just like most people who are mean to family members can be with a stranger. Treat me like a stranger. Be nice. Be kind. Be thoughtful. Be loving. What is
0: your response to when people say, oh, people are just horrible to the people they love the most?
1: It's not okay. That might be the truth because we do see that, that people are really able to keep it together in the world. From nine to five, they go and they put on this face and they're kind and they're all these wonderful things. And they come home and they unload on their kids or their partner. And, you know, we've seen that. And and I get it. You know, you want to be home and you want to be free. And it's not our best selves. I want to be good with my children and with my partner as I am in the world. I don't want that to be something that all of the world gets and then my children don't get any of it. That's not fair. I care more about them than a stranger, right? So I have to be able to manage some of who I am, just like I choose to manage who I am with these other people. This is so
0: powerful. And it's just amazing how much we as you just said, the people we love the most, we choose not to be our best selves. It does even feel crazy when you're verbalizing so much behavior. I'm sure every single person listening could be like, oh yeah, Like my partner lets out his stress at work on me when he comes home. It's such a common behavior we are seeing everywhere. And I know so many parents have got that guilt where you're like, oh, I just really took out on the kids last night. I'm sure there's actually a lot of People feeling maybe a little bit guilty listening to what you've just said. And obviously, none of us are perfect. So, what is your response to that? Or, what would be your advice for people who don't know how to keep
1: it together for 24 hours? Let's say, don't just feel guilty, do better. You know, you have the opportunity to not change what happened, but certainly change what you choose to do in the future. You know, there's a difference between, oh my gosh, I yelled yesterday, and oh my gosh, I yell every single day. Yeah. There are times when we notice ourselves being something that we don't want to be and we have an opportunity to maybe clean that up and apologize. It's not ignoring it all the time. You know, if I yell at my kids, I apologize about the yelling and I say to them, it's not nice to yell to people. And I know that I did an unkind thing. I'm not too big to say that, you know, yeah. I don't want you to feel like being yelled at by people, Is okay because it's not, even if I do it. That's like me, you know, smoking cigarettes and saying, no, no, they're okay because I do it. No, on the package, it says that they're not okay. It doesn't matter who's doing it. And so I want you to know, child, friend, whoever, that even if I'm doing it, it is wrong. It's not okay. And I did it because. I did not know how to regulate my response to a tough day. And so when I had a tough day, I took it out on you. And that is not the appropriate thing to do.
0: Great advice. You write, some people will say my childhood has no impact on who I am today. Not true. You can't simply extract all the good behaviors you learned and pretend away the ones you'd rather not possess. Behaviors stick to you until you consciously change them. Why do you think so many people resist looking into their childhood at times or even wanting to draw a link between their behavior now to what they experienced previously?
1: It's scary. And what we uncover, we feel as if we have to respond to. We have to change the way we are engaged in that relationship with the person who may have been harmful for us in childhood or the things that we experience. really reconciling that we can feel those things, we can acknowledge those experiences, without having to end a relationship with someone because you don't have to change anything. It's just saying that I choose this type of person to date because I recognize that when people want to have hard conversations, I run away because just being able to connect those dots can be so helpful for you. And
0: for other people as well, because I think Mm -hmm. sometimes behavior can feel so unexplained and then we Unknowingly traumatize somebody else through mm-hmm. not being able to observe their own patterns because they've got no idea why that even occurred in the way it did. I guess also a lot of people are fearful of if they do go back, then maybe they'll feel blame towards these people that they do love. So, how do you encourage people to do this really necessary work and understanding
1: how kind of childhood experiences shape them, but do that without? attaching blame? Maybe you need to move into a place of anger. Maybe you need to feel what you need to. I don't know if the feeling of the childhood is a bad thing. And maybe there is some blame to be held on a parent or on, you know, the person responsible for whatever it is you're going through. But also there has to be some personal accountability of what you can do now. It's not all on the person who caused whatever, you know, there are some healing that you can take control of or start to manage now, perhaps, you know, that's going to therapy, perhaps that's having some difficult conversations. It's all sorts of things, but it is certainly not trying not to feel anything about your childhood because there are times where it was really tough and it was tough for a reason and maybe being mad is a part of the process and when you really feel better about the process, you'll start to be less mad.
0: How do childhood experiences impact adult relationships? And I know that's a huge question (laughs) and we could probably spend eight hours talking about it, but what instinctively comes up for you?
1: mm It impacts so many things, you know, it impacts... The partner you choose, the type of relationships you end up in, what you choose to do with your life—sometimes it can impact your level of, you know, how far you go in your education. I saw a statistic um, while writing this book that said people who have homelessness in childhood have a higher likelihood of re-experiencing that in adulthood. So there are so many things that we don't necessarily overcome. We re-experience it at later times in life. When you think about things like substance abuse, growing up in a home where there is a prevalence of substance abuse, there is a higher likelihood of developing a substance abuse issue or domestic violence. Those are things that unfortunately can mimic themselves in your adult life.
0: When this research out there that validates the massive impact childhood experiences does place on adult relationships, on journeys through life. Do you ever think about what solutions, even on a societal level, we could work towards that would break these patterns? Because, you know, do we have a duty? If we haven't gone through them, we know other people have. At what point can we help others? Or actually, do you think that no one can help anyone else truly? Like it is all about the individual journey. Or do you think we do have responsibility to break these patterns for other people? who may not have access to this podcast, to your book, even to this information?
1: I think we do have some desire to help other people. Is it necessarily our duty? Sharing information is such a loving way to show up in our relationships with other people, but it doesn't mean that they have to adhere to that information. Just because we have that information, it doesn't mean that they will listen to it. And so even in our information sharing, we have to recognize that there are times when people want that information, they want to change, they want something different for their life. And there are other times when that is not the case, when they choose to remain as they are and us loving them doesn't mean that we can change them.
0: Now that's a huge pill to swallow when you love someone and yet you know if they were willing to change, things could be so different and yet they don't want that. What is your advice in being able to let go of
1: trying to change the people you love? Accepting them as they are is really the path to changing yourself and the relationship. We can't control other people. The only thing we can do is try to control them. But in the end, people always choose to do what they want to do. Now, control is tricky because sometimes we think we are controlling people because it will look like they're doing what we want them to do. But that can be temporary because they get to decide how long and also which things they want to comply with. So as we are in the world and experiencing different things with different people, we have to be open to people choosing their life, just like we get to choose our life. We get to choose what we want in life. And yeah, we stamp it as this thing is right and this thing is wrong. But in actuality, it's very important for people to understand that we don't get to control what feels right for another person. From a psychological perspective, Why
0: do we find that these family
1: dramas tend
0: to repeat in a cycle?
1: Because no one is disrupting the cycle. Everybody is modeling. And when something is modeled for us, we just keep going with that. That's how you do it. When people start to disrupt the cycle and say, Oh my gosh, this is something I think could be different, or I would like to have my life be this way, then it's you know, then it can change. But as people are doing the same thing over and over, the the cycle will repeat itself. Sometimes we're not exposed to enough. Without exposure, we may think that what we're experiencing is the norm and it's okay. But you have to be able to have opportunities. Sometimes people don't have even opportunities to step outside of the dysfunction and see that something else is possible. That's so
0: true in so many different aspects of life. If we don't see anything different, it's so easy to kind of go back to that familiar way, even if it's hurting us. Perhaps the barrier to us receiving or even looking for new information or or kind of new examples that could show us that there is a different way. What do you think the barriers are? Is it just purely fear-related? And if it is fear related, what's your advice again to encourage people to look for different?
1: Find support outside of your family. Often people will go to the dysfunctional system and say, I need all of my support here when that might not be possible. What's possible is for you to find support. And that support might be with your friends, your colleagues, a partner, people in your community. It may not be the people in your family who are stuck in that system supporting you through it.
0: It is really interesting to ask yourself, where do you get most of your advice? And are those Mm -hmm. people equipped to give you the advice that you're asking them for? How does inherited trauma occur? Because I guess we've touched upon this monkey see, monkey do in terms of like us learning behaviors. But obviously inherited trauma is slightly different.
1: Inherited trauma is a trauma that is generational. It is passed down. Our parents experience it. And as a result, we experience it. I think about, you know, people who grew up in the Great Depression and there was a lot of poverty. They have lots of stories of how their parents' situation impacted their situation and their money mindset that, oh, my gosh, everything you have, you save because it can go away at any moment. And, you know, there's a certain way to divvy up cash. Up, don't put too much. You know, those are things that stick with people for a long time and they take that to their children. So even when they're out of poverty and they have children and they can afford ketchup and there is no longer this scarcity, they are raising their children in this situation because this is their experience this was their parents experience and so there is this re-experiencing of poverty even though families are no longer in poverty there is still this scarcity mindset that you might see so that's one example that i could think of but there are certainly many where you know there is something that happens somewhere in our lineage that continues to impact future generations
0: Is there a question that you often ask people to help them reflect on where their perhaps inherited trauma might be lying or might be present?
1: looking at a person's family history and figuring out their parents' stories, their grandparents' stories, their role in the family, how they responded to certain things, how they were able to, you know, show up as themselves in those relationships can be a huge uncovering for why they experience certain things a certain way or why they continue to experience life in a certain way. I hate to say it, but it's often true that a lot of who we are is rooted in childhood. It's rooted in our very early experiences with people and that's how we come to understand the world.
0: So let's say someone has um, read your book and found the confidence to be able to address some conversations within the family that may have previously felt really awkward or that they've been fearful that the person they're talking to would feel attacked. How do you encourage people to open up conversations in a way that doesn't make people immediately close up and feel like this is going to be something of a telling off situation but actually open the doors for really healing conversations?
1: Learning to deal with your discomfort can really help you brace yourself for those difficult conversations. Sometimes we think that discomfort avoidance is the best strategy. So I don't want to say this thing. I don't want to do this thing. It makes me uncomfortable and it'll really make me feel great to always be comfortable when in actuality the growth happens when you're uncomfortable and you're ready to have some tough conversations. One of the beauties of being an adult is being able to look at the world, hopefully from a more mature perspective. What you experience in your childhood sometimes is a lot of what your family experienced. And you may not have the full story. You have bits and pieces. And so being able to speak to, you know, maybe your parents or those who were in your life to get the backstory on things can be really helpful and healing for you so you can understand it a different way. I've heard so many adults say, I didn't know that was happening or I didn't think of it that way. Because when you're experiencing it, all you know is, oh my gosh, this was so abrupt. And it could have been like unfolding for five years. It could have been a different situation than what you thought. That's a really interesting way to approach it, this idea of
0: how can we find context for our lives. Mm -hmm. And actually our parents' experiences provide such context for our behaviors and understanding ourselves in greater detail given all the research and all the things that you've shared around how easy it is to inherit and to repeat behavior of, of our early caregivers. You write, being a victim might feel better than accepting control. I picked up on this line because I thought it was fascinating to discuss victim mentality because it's something that's on the whole quite unspoken about. And actually, it's very addictive and comforting in
1: some ways. What are your thoughts on this? Being a victim releases you from any responsibility. And some of us don't want to really take action. We want everybody else to take action. We want everybody else to go back in time and fix this. We want everybody else to be held accountable. Many of the things that I've talked about with people has nothing to do with what they can do today. The example I used in the book was of speaking to someone who was around 40 years old who said, I never went to college because my mother never told me that I should go to college. And I asked them, I said, do you know about college now? And they said, yes. I said, well, here's an opportunity. (laughs) Maybe this isn't something you were aware of at 18 years old, but every year on the news, they're highlighting someone who was 97 and graduated from college. So there is an opportunity for you to do it. Instead of doing it for the last 10 years, you've harped on the fact, my mother never told me about college at 18. You've spent two degrees thinking about why someone didn't tell you about it instead of actually going.
0: What's your next question in an experience like that with someone? I mean, it was the response of this person. Okay, cool. I'm going to look up colleges I can potentially know.
1: They didn't want to do anything about it. They wanted to talk about a person ruining their life, but they still had a lot of life to live if they were willing to do that. And this person more so wanted to say, no, I can't live my life because this person didn't equip me. My next question is, did your mother go to college? Did she have some experience or understanding of the process? Because sometimes parents, you know, I have a parent I think she went to college a semester, but there was no hey you need to go to college in my house. That's something that I wanted to do because of the exposure that I had. And so I remember being like, "Hey, we have to fill out this, you know, financial aid application." And my high school had financial aid night and they were answering questions. About the financial aid process. So, I think there are opportunities outside of our family of origin, but unfortunately, many of us are looking for one person as the teacher when the whole world is the teacher. It's not just my mother that's responsible for me. It's what I see on TV, it's the music I listen to, it is my conversation with you, it is when I go to a museum, it is this, it is that. It is so. Many things. It's not, you know what? If this one person doesn't tell me, I cannot even process the information from anyone else. I cannot accept that for my life because I would be very limited. This would be my level of understanding if I only get my knowledge from one source.
0: That is mean, really inspirational, actually, listening to that because you're right. And sometimes it actually just takes. Someone to hear that it actually just takes that reminder that everything can be our teacher. And you're right, we get so stuck in these patterns where we just expect to receive that information from that one person, that one place. And I guess this is the beauty of therapy in its ability to widen the perspective. And I know Fed therapy isn't available to everyone, but as you just said, like it's the music we listen to, it's the museum we potentially go to, it's our friends or the culture we consume. That we forget just how powerful these different things can be in another part of your book you really focus on steps towards healing and this is incredibly powerful because it gives really practical ways that we can bring healing into trauma that in all honesty probably most humans have had in some way shape or form in terms of dysfunctional family patterns what are the stages of change
1: The stages of change is the process that we go through to grow and evolve. The first stage is not being aware of a problem. Sometimes we're not even aware that a problem exists. We might have some blowback impact consequence of it, but we're not very clear of what the problem is. The second stage is we're more clear of a problem. We're not necessarily working to correct the issue just yet. Stage three is where we get a little bit more pushy about our needs, our expectations. We're trying to change some things. Stage four we're really elevated. We're doing a bit more. We're holding people accountable. And stage five is just where you maintain all of these changes. You have it under your belt. You are ready to do new things and you just need to maintain it.
0: If you could share a couple of really practical tips in terms of first steps where they can start to bring about healing into some of their relationships.
1: First step is be willing to have uncomfortable conversations with people, even your partner, even figuring out, you know, how their family dynamics impacted them because that can be really telling for, you know, why they do certain things or why they don't do certain things. Sometimes we're just unaware of what's going on in our families and how those things impact us and it impacts your relationship. When I've seen couples where, you know, there may be some financial challenge, and this is a challenge a person experienced in their in their childhood and it's coming up in their marriage. So it's really important to be clear about what is impacting what. Two, I would say find support outside of your family, lean on your friends, build relationships, with people that have the potential to be fairly healthy, the potential to facilitate growth. Maybe some people who are in the same, not necessarily the same boat as you, but maybe the same process as you. It can be really helpful, not just think about things from the perspective of, I can only get support from my family. You may have to venture out. Sometimes that's even getting some new friends who understand these things in a different way because it's not your current friends. It could also look like, you know, recultivating some of those friendships that maybe you released because you weren't ready to do some of the healing. And now that you are, you can go back to those things. I would say number three is to understand that just because you uncover things, it doesn't mean that you have to leave a relationship. This book is really about getting people to learn how to exist in unhealthy relationships and if you decide to leave them here is some support for you as well but it's not a coaching of leave all your relationships it's like no there are some relationships you may never want to leave and this person gets on your nerves here is how you handle it better it's not always getting out of the relationship sometimes it's staying in it and figuring out how to be in a relationship with a person who x y and z What's the best advice you've been given? To take care of yourself. That seems like such simple advice, but I feel like everybody gives that advice. Like when you meet somebody, they're like, take care, take care of yourself. And it's like, I am taking that to heart this year. Like take care of yourself is on 1000. Take care of yourself is eight hours of sleep. Take care of yourself is up. This is not a good time to talk to that person. You know how they are. Take care of yourself is sleeping in. Taking care of myself is so many things. I'm being so serious about the thing that the stranger in the grocery store says to me freely, the thing that, you know, my mom, my dad, everybody has been saying for years, take care of yourself. Oh my gosh. (laughs) That is like, that's my favorite piece of advice. It is so simple and it's also the most hard thing to apply it's like cooking eggs you know seems very easy it took me years to get to a point where I like my own eggs (laughs) so I, I think it's one of those things seems like so simple take care of yourself but the application of it oh it's a lifelong practice
0: what a beautiful note to finish on where's the best place for people to find you if they've got further questions obviously we'll put a link to your brilliant book drama free in the show notes but where can we direct people
1: Yes, please find me on my website at nadratawab.com. All of the updated information about any appearances that I have. I have quizzes. I have worksheets, things about my book, things about me, interviews, all sorts of fun stuff. It's available right there on my website.
0: Perfect. We will make sure we'll put a link to that in the show notes. And this just leads me to say thank you so much for this brilliant Super practical, insightful, inspirational chat. Um, I've really enjoyed it. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening. And if you enjoyed today, please hit subscribe and leave a comment because this helps the podcast so much. I'd be endlessly grateful if you wouldn't mind doing so. My mental health book, Happy Not Perfect, is available to order now. The book teaches you how to be a flexible thinker. A skill that helps you navigate any challenge that might come your way, helps you manage emotions and helps you thrive to be the bendiest version of yourself. Until next time, I love hearing from you. So do shoot me a message on Instagram. Send me a DM with any of your thoughts. Stay safe and well.